You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Friday, March 18th, 2022. This is episode number 239. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 28,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Last night, we hit 4,000 downloads of the podcast. Yay! We have listeners in the United Arab Emirates, Singapore, Hong Kong, Shanghai, Japan, British Columbia, the UK, Germany, France, and the Netherlands. Welcome to the world, State of Cannabis News Hour. Today, we're talking about California may legalize interstate commerce. Santa Barbara County taxes coming up short. Houseplant launches a mentorship program. Sonoma County slashes taxes 45%. THC restriction bill in Virginia. Kentucky House passes medical legalization. New Jersey bill to get insurance companies to pay for medical cannabis. A hashtag free Britney G update. And many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lameet. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or South by Southwest or one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What have you got today, Rico? Oh, man. So mine's coming out of um, Lexology's Canna Law blog. Uh, California might legalize interstate cannabis sales. So uh, gas prices are shitty. So let's all save money and hop in the all-electric community DeLorean to go back in time exactly one month ago. February 18, 2022, the Chinese Winter Olympics are winding down to the final days of competition. Biden administration sounding the alarm on what U.S. intelligence predicting um, as an invasion of Ukraine by Russia within days after fingering the Russian military as the culprit behind major Ukraine banking hack and the largest buildup of armed forces since World War II. The world's on edge and watching closely. It's a perfect smokescreen for local legislators to do what they do best, use the highly effective good old reach-around technique to slip in some major shit when we least expect it. 
Seems here in California, that's exactly what happened. A quick scan of the news headlines over the last month reveals LA Weekly reported on it three weeks ago, but somehow this news slipped under the radar of all cannabis news outlets. Well, an article published by Lexology yesterday reported lawmakers quietly introduced SB 1326, a bill amending the Medicinal and Adult Use Cannabis Regulation and Safety Act, the MAUCRSA, to legalize interstate cannabis sales, notwithstanding the status of federal law. To be exact, SB 1326 would authorize Gavin Newsom to enter an agreement with other states authorizing medicinal or adult-use cannabis, um, commercial cannabis activity, or both between entities licensed under the laws of the other states and California entities operating with a state license. If enacted, it would A. Limit interstate commerce, uh, commercial cannabis activities to out-of-state operators that secure a state license or a local license permit or other authorization issued by local jurisdiction. B, require that other states impose requirements, including uh, product safety, labeling, and testing uh, requirements on their cannabis licensees um, that meet or exceed the requirements applicable to the MAUCRSA licensees. Or NC. Mandate that the agreement include provisions for collection of applicable taxes. Uh, The second provision here just might be the most impactful because punting punting these liabilities to out-of-state cannabis licensees could totally violate the Dormant Commerce Clause, the DCC, which is written clearly as... Uh, prohibiting states from enacting legislation that discriminates against or excessively burdens interstate commerce and regulates conduct occurring beyond their borders without some adequate localized justification. The positives here are that SB 1326 would allow California to uh, to export oversupplied product, which is a huge issue. Um, also, it would make Cali one of the first states to export, giving the Golden State a huge leg up on competitors as it's just not legal yet under federal prohibition, which is still a thing. But it would, in fact, increase revenue, drive investment, uh, expansion, business formation, and of course, jobs, jobs, jobs. SB 1326's language nearly mirrors Oregon's version of the bill, which was enacted in June 2019, granting governor of Oregon authority to make agreements with neighboring legal states, providing such activities become lawful under federal law, or if the Department of Justice implements a administrative policy allowing for such commerce. We had a huge debate on the issue about two months ago. However, the article does point out that SB 1326, in its current form, unlike Oregon's version, does not expressively tie the governor's authority to federal legality. We can act alone. The California Cannabis Industry Association, CCIA, and the Alliance for Sensible Markets, the ASM, have been promoting interstate commerce for quite some time now, and it wouldn't be a surprise to anyone if it's revealed that they had a major part in influencing this. It's obvious interstate commerce would be a major positive for Oregon and California struggling oversupplied cannabis economies, but how would this affect the rest of the union? MSOs are surely against having their booth-controlled markets infringed upon, and they're the ones with all the money openly controlling pretty much everything that goes on in some states where the only legal product that uh, is what's on their cookie-cutter dispensary shelves. Um, Looks like the industry just might be seeing the seeds being sown for a Cold War summer. We'll be watching closely. Well, at least closer than we have um, last time because this shit, I don't know how the fuck we missed this one. This is Rico Lamite, the dopest dad on the street, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts on this one, especially Jason Beck, who has been sounding the alarm on the dormant commerce clause for quite some time now. What you got, Jason? 
Yeah. So, um, so first off, I, I, I do support the bill as it is. However, it's a pipe dream. It's not even a, a realistic way to actually achieve this goal. I do like it, though, because it does keep the drumbeat going on the narrative of opening up interstate trade. So first of all, let's just say Oregon has already passed a similar bill like this. California, let's just say California's passed. Then let's just say they could enter into a, a, a contract. Well, the, um, the problem with that is that these types of contracts have to be approved by Congress in order for them to be valid. The state doesn't have any jurisdiction over its over its border outside of the state. And so therefore that falls within the realm of the federal government. And so therefore, um, if any company even engaged in this, once uh, the two states pass that type of bill, they would definitely uh, be in danger of a violation. Um, and the DEA could 100% come after them for interstate trade. And I would uh, disagree with that, Jason. I think that all cannabis activity that's taking place is federally illegal and the DA hasn't come in and stopped it. So the fact that they could come in, the fact that it could be illegal in theory does not mean that enforcement is going to happen. Also, I think on an economic interstate commerce compacts need to be between producer and consumer states and Oregon and California compact between both states will not help ease the supply glut in either Oregon or California. There's not enough consumers in Oregon for our leftover cannabis, cannabis from California. We need states um, that are consumer states to enter into these compacts for them to be viable. I, 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 I disagree with that. I'll go ahead, Gretchen. Well, I was just going to say, I, I don't understand Rico's uh, thought process that this is not good for MSOs. I mean, aren't they the ones who have the money and the uh, they don't, they, and the capability? They don't want better product. They don't want, want better Rico, product coming Rico, in Rico, and taking Rico, them out. Rico, let me, let me ask my question first before you try and answer it. Um, my question is, don't these guys have the logistics and the capabilities to actually make this work? And get product if they have a license, say, in Massachusetts, where like Omar is suggesting it needs to go to a consumer state and get a much better product from California over to, you know, somewhere on like the East Coast that might want it. I think not, um, because it's going to be way better product than they already have. And they're not going to be able to control uh, um, any of the consumer sentiment towards those better products, those better brands that are coming out and they're infringing on all that they've built uh, to put out their their subpar uh, product in the states that they control uh, to a hilt, like um, like Florida, like Massachusetts, um, but less Massachusetts, but more like Connecticut and Florida, where you have nothing but uh, the government and MSO cartels yeah, and, I uh, in Illinois as well. I think it also comes down to for me anyway, sun-grown versus indoor. You have a lot of states like Nevada, Arizona, and definitely the East Coast states that are gearing up to build super grows to feed their vertically integrated infrastructure, and they're not going to return their investment if all of a sudden awesome, cheap, high-quality sun-grown starts flooding across the nation, right? So that's never going to happen. This notion of Oregon and cannabis, Pacific Northwest cannabis, being able to filter to, through consumer states, as Omar put it, the reason is even if they made a, an, an agreement with the state, stakeholders in cannabis, those MSOs, are not going to let go of that infrastructure that they've built until they get a return on their investment. Places that have a deeper uh, infrastructure like California and Oregon selling weed into those places, especially better quality weed, is just never going to fly with them. So they're always going to be resistant. That's why it's MSOs, quote unquote, V 
legacy operators. We've been making great cannabis here in California and Oregon, and we're overgrown, and we should be able to export it. That's how commodities work. But we're in this weird regulatory thing where these folks have gamed the system, and now they have a privileged environment in, let's say, Florida. They don't want our cannabis coming there. They want to grow it in their little rooms and provide that booth. Guy, but if they have, if they are licensed in California and Florida, wouldn't it make more business sense to them to be using, you know, the product that they've created in California and ship that to Florida instead of wasting all their money trying to grow indoor in places where it shouldn't be grown? Well, yeah, 100- they, can't, they can't do that. That's not even reality because interstate compacts are based off of states that are abutting. Um, so they're, you're not having to hop over any other states going from California to Florida. That's not even realistic under this even type of scenario, which is another reason why we just need to deschedule or bust because that will open up interstate trade 100%. The Rach case, Angel Rach, went all the way to the Supreme Court. She was the second to go as a patient. She lost 5-4. She lost the ability to have someone grow her medicine or to grow her own medicine as a medical patient because of interstate commerce laws. This is law of the land federally. I understand that the states may get away with certain things for a period of time without interference, but if we keep poking the bear, this would be the sword that they die on because the interstate commerce clause has been tested all the way to the Supreme Court. There is no question that they can go after these people on this, even for medical, even for medical. Thank you, Dale. Tuck me away. Have a beautiful day. Love you, Dale. All right. uh, Coming up next, uh, our next correspondent is an educator, brand strategist, healthcare consultant, founder of the Cannabis Business Council of Santa Barbara County. And I love her so much because she brings the data and not the drama. Coming to the stage is Liz Rogan. What you got for us today, Liz? Good morning. Greetings, everybody. Thank you, Rico. Uh, My story today comes from the Lompoc Record by Mike Hodgson. The headline reads, Santa Barbara County cannabis taxes coming up short again due to glut of weed. Like the rest of the state's cannabis industry, Santa Barbara County is experiencing an oversupply of cannabis flour. And this, coupled with a lack of retail operators, has caused a significant drop in tax revenues that the county had used to fill funding gaps for important services like libraries. The tax revenue had increased dramatically in 2019 to 2021, the past two years, but the county officials are now projecting cultivation tax revenue for 2021 to 2022 will end up being some $6 million below what was anticipated in their budget. So they're looking at quarter two overall from 2021 to 2022. They're saying $2.3 million in taxes was collected this fiscal year, which is down 300000 from the $2.6 million in the same quarter of last year. So cannabis storefront retail taxes are also expected to fall short of budget projections by $567,000. This decrease is primarily due to the timing of when each of the six retail operators are expected to complete the land use, entitlement, and business licensing process. So they project that the county executive office projects that one operator will open in the last quarter of this year with the remaining five opening next year. So the county will likely have to find a way to cover the budgeted $6.6 million to general county programs with $3.3 million of unallocated cannabis revenue remaining from the 2020 to 2021 fiscal year and $3.3 million from the Cannabis Prudent Reserve Fund of $4.7 million. So cannabis tax monies are still covering the balance for now. 
But the oversupply is an issue, and there are prospective cultivators who have submitted applications for land use entitlements totaling over 3,000 acres, which is almost double the 1,500, I'm sorry, the 1,575 acre cap of the inland area of Santa Barbara County. As of February 11th, 63 operators were on the eligibility list. To date, the Planning and Development Department has approved land use permits for 1,800 acres, but permits have actually only been issued for under uh, 600 acres. Most of the difference for that is the result of appeals that have been filed against approved projects, project changes that have been prompted by appeals, and projects simply being withdrawn. Planning and Development has received a total of 75 appeals on 48 projects. Of that total, 46 appeals were withdrawn, closed, or otherwise acted upon. Of 30 appeals currently being processed against 20 cannabis projects, 16 are to the planning permission and four go to the Board of Supervisors. So you can hear that there's been a lot of appeals going on here in Santa Barbara. A total of 178 applications for cannabis business license have been submitted, and only of those, only 32 have been issued. The rest are pending. The Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Task Force is focused on what they call bad actors. Enforcement actions are down this year with 15 enforcement actions taken in the second quarter compared to 11 last year and 20 in the year before. These enforcement activities resulted in about uh, 13,000 plants valued at $6.5 million being seized along with 3,500 pounds of dried product, which is about $4.1 million in cop math. If those operations had been legal, they're saying the county's cannabis tax revenues might have been in better shape. Santa Barbara County has the, had the highest number of provisional licenses in the state in 2018, and this brought in a large amount of tax revenue. But as farms endure the grueling land use permitting and often multiple appeals, as you can hear, they can't make the cut. So according to local cultivators who I spoke with in the Carpinteria Valley, sales are increased in 2022 thus far, and the low cost of goods is the main factor for the drop in sales tax revenue. I was personally looking at data to see how much each county paid in cannabis taxes, but I couldn't find any current data. So I'd love to hear if anyone does. Please let me know. But since the huge green dollar sign was the carrot for cannabis businesses here in Santa Barbara County, I'm wondering if we're going to see any effects of this. But as we know, the cannabis industry has kind of been a Mr. Toad's wild ride thus far. So um, I'm just buckling on tight. This is Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour from Santa Barbara County. I would love to hear what anyone has to say on this exciting topic. It's all fucked up, man. The game is all, <laughs> the game is all fucked up. You know, they, they, lower taxes in some places is fucking up everything, and then higher taxes in other places is fucking up everything. Um, I just don't know what to do. I'm not an economist, but um, something's got to give, and the trap is always going to win. Regulatory fatigue. Extrapolate upon that. I, oh you know, I think a lot of people are just kind of uh, worn out and weary of all these like regulatory changes and upheavals and keeping track just gets kind of tiring. You know, people in the cannabis industry are experiencing regulatory fatigue. It would be nice to focus on jobs more than taxes, too. I agree. Uh, Omar, I, you know, when everyone talks about cannabis use disorder, when I switched between the two, I started saying conditional use disorder, which is, I think a lot of people can understand a disorder from working on too many conditional use permits. Yeah, if I may, I mean, I'm a California cultivator and it has been one weary, weary trip. You know, um, most people I know are not even cultivating this year, like up in my area region. They're just like, why? 
Why would I? You know, and that's a shame because these are really good cultivators, you know, unlike the big MSOs. And, you know, it, 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 it's, it's going to give. When you try to build a plane in flight, there's only one inevitable outcome. And that plane is crashing and it's crashed. And now we're all looking at the wreckage going, huh, I wonder why it crashed. Maybe because it's all that outdoor, Steven. Yeah. <laughs> you and your booth, Jason. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about your carbon footprint at some point or another. No one cares about but carbon if you, footprints, bro. <laughs> if, you're, if you're a grower and you, you have cannabis that you can't sell, I, I don't think it's a great idea to burn it in protest. Please give it to a compassion project. Burn that shit. Throw it in the fireplace. <laughs> One joint at a time. One joint at a time. You got it. Carbon footprints are the worst footprints, Jason Beck. Bigfoot footprints are probably the worst footprints, Rico. Hey, man, Bigfoot yeah. exists, man. I am in Bigfoot country. And you've seen him, huh, Steve? Big, yeah, riding a cougar. Gretchen, please. Save me. What, what was her name? Bigfoot wears size 10 and a half. I love Bigfoot, so I'm with Steven on this. Yeah. yeah. What was, yeah, what was, what was the cougar's name, Whoop. Steven? Bigfoot wears size 10 and a half. Uh, onward and upward for the small growers, man. They just made a big, huge place for us. They Nobody likes that boof weed that they're growing. Steven, what was the cougar's name? <laughs> I believe Jason, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, let's go to the next story. She's she's a feisty, redheaded conservative with Mayflower roots, never backing down from a good debate with cannabis-loving peers across the aisle. Coming to the stage next is the founder of Panoptic Strategies and our very own Washington insider, Gretchen Gailey. What you got for us today, Gretchen? Good afternoon, Rico. Uh, my headline is coming from Marijuana Moment, um, which they are borrowing from the Virginia Mercury the headline is THC restriction bill on Virginia governor's desk would warn hemp industry would harm. I'm sorry, harm hemp industry. Advocates say uh, the General Assembly failed at finding a path to starting recreational cannabis sales this year. But a bill outlining stricter regulations for retailers selling what one lawmaker called juiced up synthetic products made it way through the legislature last week with bipartisan support. The bill, which is now before Governor Glenn Youngkin, explicitly bans sales of any substance that contains more than 0.3% or 0.25 milligrams of THC per serving or more than one milligram per package. The measurements would apply to any naturally occurring or synthetic version of THC, such as Delta-8, the popular synthetic substitute made from producers claim is legal. This product is dangerous because people don't understand the impact and the safety issues. Uh, according to Senator Emmett Hanger, who introduced the legislation. Since the personal possession and home cultivation of marijuana became legal in the Commonwealth last year, but not commercial recreational sales of the drug, which is currently restricted to licensed medical dispensaries, have led to a wide variety of products that may or may not be legal being sold in retail outlets. As reported by the Mercury last month, gas stations, health food stores, and marijuana retailers sold mislabeled products that contained illegal amounts of Delta-9 THC, marketed as the supposedly legal Delta-8 counterpart. Uh, wrangling between the Republican-controlled House and Democratic-controlled Senate this year failed to produce a solution for legalizing recreational sales. Every year, the language gets a little bit closer, ultimately, to what we need to support consumer safety to ensure consumer protections, uh, said Michelle Peace, a forensic science professor at VCU, who has conducted reviews of marijuana retail products sold in Virginia stores. 
She said, I don't think that the bill is going to address absolutely everything we need to address in terms of regulating cannabis, but I do think that it gets us closer. When it was introduced, Hangers SB 591 attempted to curtail marijuana retail products appealed to children by banning depictions of humans, animals, vehicles, and fruits. But the bill expanded to bring the unregulated market under control. To close the loopholes, when a new compound comes on the market, it is essential for legislation to give state agencies flexibility in the existing regulatory framework. A piece said describing the popularity of Delta 8 as a perennial problem that would continue with scientific advancements. Although the legislation with the broad bipartisan support, hemp advocates such as Jason Amatucci, the president of the Virginia Hemp Coalition, says the legislation throws the whole hemp industry under the bus. Amatucci agreed that the provision that will regulate products appeals to children, but says the limits set forth are so low they would criminalize most products. This bill doesn't do anything to actually solve the problem. It actually just hurts the current law-abiding Virginia hemp industry that's making good quality products. At the federal level, Delta 8 remains unregulated because of a loophole in the 2018 Farm Bill that regulated the levels of Delta 9 THC levels in hemp. Legalizing a 0.3% standard that the bill passed by General Assembly mirrors, but does not mention Delta 8. All the politicians celebrate alcohol and everybody loves it. But as soon as you have cannabis or someone is intoxicated with cannabis, everyone loses their minds in the state. They can't think clearly and they feel like they can't regulate it or they have to ban it or they have to criminalize it. Uh, I, I am very torn between this piece of legislation uh, because I don't believe in trying to regulate specific cannabinoids. I think yeah, that's just a slippery slope. And uh, like this professor from VCU says, it's just going to be a problem that's going to continue with uh, scientific advancements. Um, I think Virginia needs a much better understanding of, uh, of the science before they propose more legislation. This is Gretchen for State of Campus News Hour. When alcohol prohibition was lifted, did they regulate how much uh, alcohol, what the proof could be? That was the difference between moonshine and regular alcohol. Well, what I, we don't, I don't know what the proof levels for alcohol are, but I mean, there are definitely different levels when it comes to medicines and things of that nature um, that people consume. There's levels to this shit. Well, yeah, yes. Yeah, I don't think I don't think Gretchen understands that that reference, Jason. Levels <laughs> require people to do thinking and diligence. And while I agree that like we should not demonize any cannabinoids, we should regulate all cannabinoids together. We have a um, in Virginia we have a uh, an age old way of testing the levels of alcohol in our moonshine. You just pour out a little bit on the driveway and burn it. If it's red, you're dead. If it's blue, you're goo. That's it. That's the real turn up right there, Rico. I don't know about that test because I personally haven't tried it, but I do agree with uh, some of what you said, Gretchen, in that I think that they should, science is going to continue moving forward and they're going to find loopholes and, and ways to get around and create these things. So I also agree with Omar in that they need to figure out a way to do it all together. I look forward to clarity for patients because I think there's, I mean, for everyone, but especially for medical patients who are trying to find relief. Well, and I also don't agree with all these loopholes that are in the farm bill. I mean, someone needs to really clear up the ambigu ambiguity there because the farm bill is a disaster. If people want clarity, they should start taking Claritin. Yes, indeed. So all right. Let's, let's go ahead and relight this room. We're about at the half hour point. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose.
The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's. In an industry full of snakes, fakes, and flakes, and in the great purple state of Texas with trolls posting up daily smoking Delta 8 underneath the bridge, this fellow dope dad is hitting the high road. That's right. He's the hottest host and co-creator of the new show from Sensi Mag and fellow seeker of truth himself, Stone Slade. What you got for us today, Stone? Thank you, Rico. Had a good time hanging with you at South by my friend. Today, my story is from attorney at law Jennifer A. Cattell at WorkComp Central. The New Jersey Assembly recently introduced legislation A3511, which would force every workers' compensation, personal injury insurer, and health insurance carrier writing insurance in New Jersey to provide coverage for medical cannabis. Those against this legislation fear it overreaches into the contractual bargaining between consumers and insurance companies and will cause premiums costs to rise. Excuse me. Ms. Cattell points out that the legislation appears to be an attempt to systemize and expand on the ruling in the 2020 Hager versus MK construction case. In that case, it was found that the workers' compensation carrier had to provide medical cannabis as a reasonable and necessary medical treatment under the facts of that particular case. If this new bill is passed, employers and their carriers must include coverage for medical use of cannabis, the use and sale of which is currently prohibited under federal law. Now, the pertinent portion of the proposed bill reads, notwithstanding the provisions of subsection A of this section, an employer or workers' compensation insurance carrier or private passenger automobile insurance carrier shall provide coverage for costs associated with the medical use of cannabis. Now, Ms. Cattell is writing this from a legal standpoint and not one of common sense. So she does state that the bill is puzzling because it proposes that the use of medical cannabis is a common and historically accepted type of medical treatment. So she makes sure to state that it in fact does remain a highly controversial treatment, completely ignoring the fact that the plant was a common and historically accepted type of medical treatment before prohibition. So obviously there are some who do not believe that there's sufficient proof that the use of medical cannabis reduces the dependency on opiates, which was an important fact in the Hager case because Mr. Hager testified that cannabis helped him wean off of opiates. This story is definitely far from over as those who uh, oppose it continue to argue about the potential for increased insurance costs for employers and taxpayers. And even if this bill were to pass, the defense counsels will still raise the issue in individual cases whether the use of medical cannabis is actually reasonable and necessary. Keep fighting the New Jersey. There's going to be a whole lot more litigation here uh, before we know what how this one ends. I feel like so many of us give these insurance companies so much money every month, and most of us never get to reap the benefits of being insured. I think the least they can do is buy us all a little monthly medical Mary, Mary Jane. I'm Stone Slade, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I'd love to hear what our conservative correspondents feel about um, universal care coming from these insurance agencies or coming from the government. I'm, I'm all for insurance paying, paying for cannabis. I'm uh, totally on board with that. I had a feeling Jason was going to get behind that one. I, 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 got, I got you, Rico. Um, I love it, man. Bring it on. I mean, what do we pay these guys for anyway? I've, I've, I'm, I'm tired of being healthy. and <laughs> Give me something back. <laughs> <laughs> right. Being healthy under your own volition. So what's going to be the three-letter initials that they use uh, to include weed in your PPO or your HMO? 
THC, right? WTF? <laughs> WTF. No idea. All right. Anybody else want to comment on that one? Let's keep it rocking. All right. So he is the cannabis industry's longest continuously running retailer and holder of two advanced degrees in bro science. Some of his favorite worldly things are mink coats, private jets, triggering the libs, smoking the world's best weed, and identifying Booth internationally. Coming to the stage next, the international man of, I don't even know, conservative bullshit, Jason Beck. What you got for us today? It's mystery and intrigue, Rico, just for the record. Everyone, happy Friday. We finally made it. Today, my story, House Lawmakers approved medical cannabis program, sending it to the Senate. And that's right. You'll never guess what state this is. It's in Kentucky, where this is truly a bill for the people who are just trying to be and are trying to feel better, said Representative Jason Neems, Republican from Louisville, said. House Bill 136 allows doctors to prescribe medical cannabis for a few conditions, cancer, epilepsy, multiple sclerosis, chronic nausea, and PTSD. Representative Rachel Roberts, Democrat in Newport, said it'll help veterans. We asked them to protect us, she said, and now we are asking them, we, we, are, we are asking us to help them. Uh, all but one Democrat, Representative Ashley Tackett, Lafferty, a Democrat from Martin, was on board with the bill. Representative Al Gentry, Democrat of Louisville, said he has several friends who have benefited from it. I know I know real people that have had their lives turned around by these products, he said, and a lot of them are living in the closet or living in secrecy because they feel like a criminal. But the GOP was split with some arguing that it'll just lead to full legalization and more problems with drug addiction. The common denominator of a 99.9% of the drug addiction problem in America started with marijuana representative Chris Fatugi. Republican from Chive said, and I totally think that's 100% fucking reefer madness, but Neems, the bill main sponsor, said he's not for full legalization, but he is for compassionate care and people who are sick. If you're a physician or your wife's physician or your husband's physician or, God forbid, your child's physician told, told you that this product works in other states and it will help your child, what would you do, he said. If you would fight for your kid, hit the green button. I actually, that's a pretty good quote. Good job, guy. The bill would be one of the one of the most restrictive medical cannabis programs in the country, where 37 other states have legalized it in some form. Kentucky's program wouldn't allow patients to smoke cannabis either. It can only be taken in edible form, vape oil, or medical cannabis. Now moves to the Senate, where it died in 2020. Since then, Judiciary Chairman Senator Whitney Westerfield, Republican from Hopkinsville, said he supports it, so it is expected to receive at least a committee vote this time around. And four main things, what you need to know about this Kentucky bill is the Kentucky House of Representatives passed a bill legalizing uh, cannabis for medical purposes. The bill only includes a few qualifying conditions and is more limited than in most other states. All but one Democrat voted for the bill while the GOP majority was split on the measure and medical cannabis heads to the Senate where it faces an uphill battle. Well, I, Kentuckians, I strongly encourage you to call your senators and urge them to encourage them to endorse this bill, support it and vote yes for it. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Yes, vote yes on it, but leaving chronic pain out is pretty shameful. Yeah, and I, and I think I think a lot of Kentuckians, after yesterday's first round exit of the big dance, could use some medical cannabis right about now because they are hurting. I think chronic vague is too too vague for Kentuckians to 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 be able to get over the finish line. That's why it was left out. 
Go ahead, Christopher. 30, well, just is, that's a little bit insane. 30% of Americans suffer from chronic pain. It's just insane that they would take it out. It's, it's completely common. And we, the most common. And we, it's on every single it doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's common. It's about how, how it gets perceived of, and, and people have seen. Of course it the, matters what else? Of course it matters that it's common. That's the only thing that matters. What are you talking about? No, no but, 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 but a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of these uh, people, representatives in these uh, other states have seen misuses happen, and they're just trying to prevent from that, and they believe that a lot of that is a cause talk of about misuses that's just another way that's just another way to say welfare queen what are you doing Give me out. what about the Come opioid on. crisis come well, on if chronic pain was an accepted condition then lots of people who are using opioids would have a legal and verified reason to convert to cannabis and the people who are profiting off cannabis are not the pharmaceutical companies that are in the pocket of the people in the government that are voting on this thing so i think it's pretty obvious why chronic pain was not included because too many people would opt to use cannabis for it and then people who are favored by politicians would no longer be making as much money. Well said. Yeah. And also I'm wondering if they would include like the chronic conditions that people are diagnosed for if they have MS or if they have something like that, would those individual conditions be considered acceptable or is it simply just chronic pain? Let's we're, go, Brandon. We're, we're at time on this, but I, I've been waiting for Kara Bradford to come up to our stage. Kara, what would you like to say? We're at time, but let's hear it. Yeah, just want, so I'm from Western Kentucky area, and we've been working really hard just to get uh, the legislative members on board to even consider this. So it's, I know it's a baby step, but um, a lot of work went into this. So um, hopefully there will. We'll get further down the road, but um, it's it's a, a actually a very big step for Kentuckians. Indeed. So up next, he is a communication strategist and publisher of the American Cannabis Report most of the time. But when he gets word of an ECS in need, he finds the closest phone booth available to toke up and turn into Sassamina Superman. That's right. Up next, it's Christopher Smith. What you got for us today, Christopher? That's awesome, Rico. Thank you. And good morning. And good morning, Susan. Um, my story today comes from the Los Angeles Blade, which is Southern California's LGBTQ news source. Wiener introduced le- legislation to restore access to medicinal cannabis. So, quotes uh, State Senator Scott Wiener, a Democrat from San Francisco, uh, introduced State Bill 1186 this week, which will restore voter created access to medical cannabis across the state by requiring cities and counties to provide consumers access to purchase medicinal cannabis. Products Under SB 1186, jurisdictions will allow either licensed medicinal cannabis retail stores, uh, sorry, jurisdictions must allow either licensed retail uh, medicinal cannabis retail stores, licensed medicinal cannabis deliveries, or both. Cities will be able to choose what kind of of medical cannabis businesses they allow, but they must allow it in at least one form as a matter of medicinal access. So I'm not a patient, so I never really understood the the battle uh, or had to battle the consequence of Prop 64. But in reading this article, the solution seems to be pretty obvious. But I want to take a step back just to clarify what's happened. Um, so in 19, 
1996, the Prop 215 was passed here in California as the Compassionate Use Act. And Prop 215 started the cannabis revolution really across the country. Uh, And 20 years later, though, Prop 64 granted cities local control to ban adult use businesses. It did not grant local control to ban medical businesses. However, the legislature, without being required by the voters to do so, granted cities the ability to ban medical cannabis businesses. The result of Prop 64 was that people who need cannabis as medicine are thus denied access and forced to rely on the illicit market for their medicine. They are less safe as a result. This is a quote from the article. Um, So therefore... uh, uh, SB 1186, the new bill, respects the voters' intent of Prop 215, ensures Californians throughout the state have timely and convenient access to safe, effective, and affordable medical cannabis and cannabis products, and assures the will of the voters is not undermined by local jurisdictions that have essentially prevented medicinal cannabis access by banning medicinal uh, retail stores or delivery services. Also, uh, another opportunity is that this will, if it goes through, will provide new channels for our incredibly uh, uh, our incredible oversupply here in the state, creating new opportunity for cannabis growers, manufacturers, and innovators. Um, so I'd like to hear everyone's opinion about what they think about this uh, suggested fix uh, for an opening up a, a new pipeline or new channel for uh, production in California. Well, I like Senate Bill 1186 in concept, but if it passes, it would be a symbolic rollback of Prop 64's local control. However, the way it's written, what one hand giveth, the other taketh away. Senate Bill 1186 may have intended to limit local jurisdictions between choosing to limit the sale of medicinal cannabis to delivery only or to limit the sale of medicinal cannabis to storefront retail sale only. But the language is unclear because it does not prohibit local jurisdictions from enacting new medical bans. And those local jurisdictions which ban medical cannabis sales entirely, SB 1186 would be an improvement over the status quo. And those local jurisdictions which already allow for medical cannabis sales, SB 1186 if passed, would allow uh, local delivery bans with the imprimatur of state law. So any new medical delivery bans would erode patient access to life-saving medicinal cannabis, and that's why I am ambivalent about SB 1186. So I, I just uh, got a text message uh, just yesterday from a, a lobbyist that was working on this issue. And prior to this, um, if you would have reported this yesterday, Chris, I would have said that I'm totally against this bill, but now I'm much more in favor of it due to these corrections. He says, congratulations, Section 26303B has been stricken from the bill. While you respond to Wiener's office after thanking them for the amendment, you may wish to inform them that 26304B, page 7, lines 8 through 17, need to go back to legislative council to reflect the previous amendments. I still have a big bone to pick with the nomenclature used until the day medical replaces medicinal uh, will the legislature get anything right about cannabis regulations. I'll spare Wiener's office today and wait until next week so I don't blow blow the confidence that you guys placed on me. I don't see this bill passing since the CCIA's poison pill has been stricken. Prop 64 SB 94 needs a thorough comprehensive review rather than a piecemeal solution legislation that at times that at times further compliance the matter. So great job uh, to Weed for Warriors for working on this, as well as all the other lobbyists that, that helped to get this uh, get this fixed and patched up. I'm talking about the fixed version that's currently on the Legislative Council's uh, 
you know, website that's publicly available to everybody. So if that gets updated. It should have just been amended. You should be able to see those corrections today, Omar. All right. Well, so far, we're still waiting. I think you guys should just fight. (laughs) There's no need to fight. And plus, Omar knows how it went. I uh, jujitsu rolls. <laughs> he knows. I, he knows. I'm a. I'm a. I'm a jujitsu grappler. I bring them all to the ground and just put them out in paint. Let's <laughs> let's keep smoking the news. Let's, let's do that. And speaking of, our next correspondent is the founder of a boutique and transactional business law uh, cannabis law firm, a legal publisher, author, ganjier, and practitioner of high style Brazilian jujitsu. That's right. The man with the most dangerous ground game in cannabis is up next. Omar Figueroa. What you got for us, my man? Thank you, Rico. Happy Friday, everyone. My story is from TMZ Sports. The headline is Brittany Griner asked court for house arrest. Request was denied. The scoop is we're learning more about Brittany, Brittany Griner's hearing in Moscow on Thursday. Sources close to the situation uh, tell the TMC Sports that the hearing was actually requested by the WNBA Stars legal team. They asked the court to allow Brittany Griner to be released on house arrest. The request was denied by the court. Something uh, TMC sources um, say the Griner legal team expected. As for the May 19th date, that's when Griner is expected to return to court. If the Russian investigators need more time, they'll request an extension in May. Once the investigation is complete, a trial date will be set. Griner's legal team has been able to visit her on several occasions at the location where she is being held. According to our sources, Griner is okay, but clearly wants to return home as soon as possible. And then by way of background, Brittany Griner was in Russian court on Thursday and will remain in custody for at least another two months after they extended the arrest of the WNBA star who's accused of bringing drugs into the country. Video was Release showing the Phoenix Mercury Center walking, presumably outside the Moscow area courtroom, flanked by two female guards. The footage is the first we've seen of 31-year-old Griner since she was taken into custody weeks ago. Russian news agency TASS says the Moscow court granted more time to investigate the alleged crimes and extended the period of detention of the U.S. citizen until May 19th. Griner has been in custody since February after Russian customs officials claim they found hashish oil vape cartridges in her carry-on luggage at an airport. As for the conditions of her detainment, TASS reports she's sharing a cell with two other women who have no prior convictions. They also reported the 6-foot-7-inch athlete was issued a bed too short for her frame. After her arrest, Russian officials said they opened up a drug trafficking investigation into Griner. Everyone from NBA and WNBA stars, actors and actresses to Griner's wife has called on the country to release Griner to no avail. There are no words to express this pain, Griner's wife Sherelle said early, earlier this month. I'm hurting, we're hurting, we await the love on you as a family. Several prominent politicians have spoken out about Griner's arrest, including Hillary Clinton, who recently wrote Free Britney on social media. U.S. Congressman Colin Allred, who also hopes to, who also happened to attend Baylor U, recently told us he hopes Griner doesn't become a political pawn during the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Many fear Griner, who has played pro basketball in Russia for years, could be used as a bargaining chip against America, as the West has levied very stiff sanctions against the country. 
My take is Britney should have been released with strict conditions on home detention. She poses no threat to public safety and her pre-conviction incarceration violates the presumption of innocence. I researched the Russian criminal justice system and technically there is a presumption of innocence. The Constitution of Russia in Article 49 states that, quote, everyone charged with a crime shall be considered not guilty until his or her guilt has been proven in conformity with the federal law and has been established by the valid sentence of a court of law. Uh, so, you know, putting her in these conditions where she can't even like sleep on a bed that's too short for her, I think uh, is cruel and unusual punishment. And hopefully the court will revisit it, especially uh, while they're conducting an investigation on whether she was like supplying vape cartridges to anybody else. I guess that's what this whole drug trafficking investigation is. But free Britney. Uh, Brittany Griner asked court for house arrest, request was detained, and reporting from Sebastopol in Sonoma County, this is Omar Figueroa, lawyer, author, and Ganjia instructor, uh, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. TMZ won't let us post the link. It doesn't work here on Clubhouse, so that will be that link will be in the newsletter. We have a different link uh, pinned to the top of the stage. But I am obsessed with mugshots, and just looking at this mugshot of Brittany made me so sad. Um, I changed my profile picture uh, to uh, the hashtag free Brittany G with her mugshot, and I'm going to leave that as my profile picture until she's free. I'm all for it. And I'm behind the movement to free Brittany uh, Griner, but I just don't see her getting any favorable um, um, concessions from Russia. Like just knowing their track record and just being locked up abroad, like this is it, everything's fucked about. Yeah, this. she has absolutely zero chance of getting anything that she's asking for. Um, not to mention to uh, free free Brittany, but this is another reason why you don't smoke fucking Delta Eight. <laughs> Yes, indeed. So up next, he's hailing straight out of Long Beach, California. Now, our next correspondent is the CEO of Fruit Slabs and a cannabis and intellectual property attorney with a beard that is so, 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 so strong. I'm going to get you to laugh at that one of these days, Brandon. <laughs> Brandon Dorsky, what you got for us today? Uh, thanks for having me, and I am laughing. My headline comes out of Illinois. It's Illinois to roll out new adult-use pot shop license lottery, as reported by Sam Reisman at Law 360. Illinois cannabis regulators are publishing new rules for awarding adult-use cannabis licenses in an effort to make them easier for social equity applicants to obtain. The announcement comes about two years after Illinois' adult-use market opened. Mario Trado Jr., the acting secretary of Illinois' Department of Financial and Professional Regulation, said on Tuesday, quote, we are committed to an inclusive and equitable cannabis program that continues to build on its successes while also recognizing and taking steps to improve it further. We look forward to introducing even more participants to Illinois' adult-use cannabis program and encourage all feedback to help ensure we continue to grow the program together. The new rules will be published today in the Illinois Register. 55 conditional dispensary licenses will be available via a new license lottery, and winners of the lottery will have 45 days to establish criteria for social equity considerations as outlined in the Cannabis Regulations and Tax Act. An eligible business 
must be majority owned by an individual who resided in an area disproportionately impacted by cannabis prohibition for five out of the last 10 years, or someone who has an eligible cannabis conviction, or someone who is a relative of someone who has an eligible cannabis conviction. Governor J.B. Pritzkers also signaled there would be other criteria described in the new use, new adult use lottery rules that will be published. Illinois attorneys have already expressed guarded optimism that the rules would help clear the path for social equity applicants who have thus far been mired in litigation as Illinois' adult use market has ramped up. The lottery has a only $250 entrance fee and only requires very limited information from the applicant, basically contact information, information and information about the principal individuals involved. This is a much lower burden than the prior licensing regime. William Bogot, the Chicago-based co-chair of Fox Rothschild LLP's cannabis group, said, quote, maybe chance is more fair than death by a thousand lawsuits claiming their applications were improperly scored. For the unfamiliar, there have been many, many lawsuits over Illinois' rollout of their program and people not receiving licenses that they applied for and whether or not applications were improperly or biasly scored. Other practitioners also believe the changes are designed to even the playing field for those that cannot afford experts to prepare their application submissions. Bogart acknowledged that the current system was tight, was tilted in favor of the wealthy, and other attorneys also acknowledge that lowering the barrier to entry is a good thing. So, for anybody looking at the Illinois market, it looks like the pathway to a license may have just gotten cheaper, and certainly if you are a social equity applicant, that your barriers to entry may have just been lowered, but the proof is in the pudding. So pay attention, and we'll see what happens. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News. The proof is definitely in the pudding with that one, because uh, Illinois has been fucking it up every step of the way. The boof is in the pudding. You guys keep on silencing the S's, and S's are important and should not be silenced. It's Illinois. Let's keep smoking the news. Yes, indeed. I'll go on to my list, go on to my list here. All right, so um, he's an OG dope dad known and respected by the industry peers as a steadfast defender of cannabis culture and perpetual bridger of gaps. He's always the first to step up and defend legacy operators. Up next is the co-founder and now CEO of Papa and Barkley, Guy Rocourt. What you got for us, Guy? Bring us home. Hello. Good morning, Ro. Uh, good morning, Rico. Thanks for that. Uh, good morning, Susan. Yeah, you know, dude, this is a great one to wrap up on. Also dealing with social equity. Coming out of high times, Houseplant, the brand owned by Seth Rogen, has announced a uh, social equity program called, uh, um, now I'm forgetting, oh, Houseplant's in-house program is a mentorship program focused for helping individuals disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. So since we're short on time, I'm going to cut to the chase. They're trying to incubate people and they're trying to lend money to folks that are disproportionately in disenfranchised. It's the good idea. Okay. But let's just get to some facts. Houseplant is, is in uh, cahoots with Canopy Growth out of Canada. It's not even an American company yet. And I say that if you're Seth Rogen and you really want to help somebody and you really want to help social equity, get out there and use your platform and get us to deschedule or bust. Start pushing the agenda. When you're on TV, talk about weed. Get like Gary Chambers and smoke a blunt on your next opportunity and really show people that you're about normalizing cannabis. That is what would help everybody. Trying to talk and mentor social equity applicants smacks of like, you know, uh, what, what was it in the rap game when they were trying to incubate everybody and you were just trying to scoop up young artists and make money off of them? It doesn't seem right. I, I appreciate the offer to help, but 
I'd rather that help come in the form of you are a high profile person who can bend the ear of people and really stepping out there in earnest to normalize cannabis would be awesome. In the, the picture in the article, when you guys look at it, he's got this full beard. It's like, bro, come to Humboldt, own the beard, show people that you're really down with cannabis. That would go a long way than setting up some program that looks more like a media publicity stunt for canopy, canopy growth than anything else. That's my honest opinion. I like Seth Rogen as an artist and whatnot, but when these people have eyeballs and platforms and they talk about doing something, don't talk about doing something, do it. If you're about this game, if you're a cannabis smoker, step up and show us smoking cannabis. Talk about it when you're outside in public and normalize this industry through your words. My opinion, I'm Guy Rocourt reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Guy, I couldn't agree with you more, bro. Couldn't agree with you more on all that. The only thing that I disagree with you on on that is that Seth Rogen should get involved in American politics because he's a Canadian citizen and Canadians should stay the fuck out of American politics. Okay. I'm a I'm not I'm not gonna touch that the, the political part <laughs> part there, but I'm I'm sick and tired, Guy, um, of this performative justice, this performative acts. We don't need any of that shit. We need action, and people need money, and people need access to the industry. The clock is ticking, and uh, midterms are coming right around the corner. And it's looking like the Republicans are going to take over everything. So what are you going to do to get us in the proper position to flourish and to succeed in a Republican-run government um, under uh, in the in the industry? That's what I want to see, and I, I want to hear that directly from a lot of these superstars and deep-pocketed individuals. If you are interested in applying, though, the uh, window is only open until May first. So click on the article and dig into it and then also everybody who is uh interested in getting hired in the industry right now make sure you guys check out uh um uh, make sure you guys check out uh, dale she was actually on the uh, on the uh stage today um Oaksterdam university is doing an incredible hiring fair uh this uh, this weekend make sure you guys check it out now there's a lot of hiring uh fairs going on right now the industry is ramping up their um hiring processes so hop on in man Yes, and the link for that will also be in the newsletter. If you're not receiving the newsletter, send an email to me, Susan, at stateofcannabis.org, and we'll make sure and get you on that list. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank Thank you to Rico for co-producing the show and to our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. (laughs) Goodbye.